Hello dear listener and welcome to this week's episode of Garmology. This week we're off to Oslo to talk to uh, mending activist Eva Kittelsen and um, you know how these things often go? We go places we hadn't planned to go. So, um, well, hop along for the ride. Enjoy. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Now, my guest today is almost as local as my guest was a few weeks back, but I actually have never met her in real life. So it's an absolute pleasure to uh, wish you welcome today. Eva, would you like to introduce yourself? Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. It's been such a long time um, that we wanted to do this. And um, so who I am is the owner of a company called My Visible Mend. And my goal or what I'm working towards is to make mending as normal a hobby as sewing or knitting and anything like that. And by that, impacting people to recognize the value of mending and crafts in general so that that can kind of seep into also into business models in the fashion industry uh, so instead of thinking of making mending cheap it's about lifting the or raising the value the perceived value or actual value uh, of mending and i do this through creative and visible mending and i work on that in many different ways <laughs> from many different angles okay. We'll get into the mending side in a bit, but I'd love to hear more <laughs> about your background because you came to mending in quite a roundabout mm -hmm. way. But I know as a child, you were keenly interested in sewing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've been sewing all my life and making, um, like I started selling bead uh, bracelets as a kid when I was like eight, going door to door and stuff and making clothes for my uh, plushies and everything. Uh, but then I was also a dancer and I thought I had to wait with the sewing until I retired as a dancer. And my grandma was a sewer and designer. So like her and I, we would design things together. Um, and then I had to stop dancing for various reasons when I was 19 after getting a professional degree in that. And that's when I started studying uh, fashion and textile design with Enterprise. So I took a bachelor in uh, England with that. And then I worked in the fast fashion industry. So I worked for the Warner Group, who are like the biggest um, fast fashion menu group uh, in, in Norway with a lot of brands like Big like Norwegians will know, <laughs> Big Bug, Dressman, Cubis, all of these. Um, and then in my maternity leave with my second son, uh, I, I didn't really want to go back because it wasn't quite a good fit after I had kind of learned what I needed or what I felt I could learn. It was like, it was not uh, the right place. And that's when I got very, very interested in mending um, because I tried to figure out how, how can there be space for my creativity in the fashion world? Because I wanted to be a decider, like I like clothes, I like playing with clothes, you know, it's it's a fun and creative thing. Uh, but I couldn't find any justification for making any new clothes when there are so many clothes. I was like, there isn't any room, there's no design I can make that makes it worth it when we have so many things. And then 
visible mending became a solution to that problem. It's the, the idea was that if we stop making clothes now, how would we have to live? What would we do to be able to be creative and still express ourselves? And then um, inspired by Kintsugi, which a lot of visible menders are inspired by, uh, which is to repair with gold. Um, I was thinking, how can we do Kintsugi for gold? And at the time, uh, Celia Pym and uh, Tom of Holland is his tag on Instagram. They had already done a lot of visible mending as te textile artists, and I thought it was very cool, uh, but also very niche and maybe not as mar very marketable for the masses. So I tried to like put my own twist on that by adding more decorative elements on top of the contrasting colors and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> I'd, I'd like to loop back a few years before we continue <laughs> okay. with the magic, because I'm a bit curious. Yeah. You, you decided to take a degree in fashion and textile design. Mm -hmm. What was inspiring you to go that way and how did it shape you, change you? Hmm. It's many things. One, I mean, one of the reasons I got into sewing when I was maybe third, around 12, 13, a part of that was that I grew up Mormon. And when you're religious like that, uh, there's a, a, there are regulations on how you should dress. And it was very hard at that time to find clothes that I liked that also covered enough of my body. <laughs> so that was... I was already into making things. I already liked that. And on top of that, I also grew up in an area that had a lot of very rich people, but my family was not as rich as they were. So there was also the, I, I couldn't wear what everyone else was wearing anyway. And there was a religious thing. So that pushed me extra into making my own things, uh, almost out of necessity, but it also became like a creative place of freedom in a way. So that's how I like actually started sewing and and properly uh, garments for myself as well. Um, and I would go around and find uh, old curtains and stuff that were on sale and use that as a base, and then just kind of hack away <laughs> and make my own things. I never liked using patterns because I could never find a pattern that was how I wanted it. And uh, yeah, and I just kept learning from picking things apart and looking in pattern books, but not really following them because I didn't understand them because I was 13. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, that's that's where so that started. So then you decided to, to study and actually learn how to make patterns and, yeah. and design. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I wanted to do design. I mean, I wanted to be a fashion designer. Uh, and I got married back then. So the school that we went to had that program and I was like, I, it wasn't that important which school I went to as long as it could be something like that. And the strain or actually it was also, um, because I was very Mormon, <laughs> like I was a very, very religious in, in my mindset, very, um, very much a good girl. Thing, you know, I wanted to do everything the way I was taught. And so then by studying that, I could kind of justify it that even if I was going to be a stay-at-home mom, 
that would be something that would be useful for the family. So there was also that aspect to it that kind of allowed me to still do something like that that can be kind of um, too much of a luxury thing to be able to do, kind of. You know what I mean? Like, okay, not yeah. a sensible path or whatever, like too crazy, like it shouldn't work out. Um, but then from that perspective, I could justify it. And then I did that and I had a great time. It was a lot of fun uh, being able to study and sew and work on all of the things, the pattern cutting, the draping, the, the design process with like, I hated sketchbooks, but I appreciate it so much now, that process, you know, uh, as well as screen printing and everything. Like they had uh, good facilities and I could just play for three years. It was a lot of fun. And then from there you went into the world of fast fashion straight into fast fashion yeah i got my contract before i had my graduation ceremony and so i had been flying back to norway for interviews uh, before the ceremony so yeah and then i started in the commercial industry and that was different <laughs> not as creative <laughs> it's a lot of copy and paste and a lot of emails. <laughs> how, how long did you stick that out and, and what sort of things were you working at? I started working in WAV, which was really nice because it was a smaller company within uh, Big Book, kind of like a sub uh, team. And there I got to do a lot of different things because we were a team of five doing everything from uh, the design research process to um uh, to market you know planning photo shoots and everything and so i was there as a trainee but i did a really broad range of things including making things like trend bibles which would be kind of like the thing we would use as inspiration or as a guideline when developing a collection and stuff like that and i did some uh prints for clothes for t-shirts and stuff because the graphic designer uh, ended up having another job um yeah so after i worked in uh, in wav they merged uh the design and buying teams for big book and wow so then i worked on uh, sweaters and outerwear and that was a lot less fun <laughs> because it was less creative. Uh, it was more uh, and more boring. You, because you described working your first. You, you yes. described your first job as mainly copy paste, but then the second one was less creative. Sorry, I didn't mean well, to. Well, yeah, sorry. I mean it was all more copy and paste because even 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 in wow even though what we did was look at what's going on and kind of trying to predict the trends and stuff i still got to have an input in what we were copying kind of but in big buck um then that then there wasn't that they, they had their own design team that would do that research and go through what colors and all of that stuff and then we had to base what we did on that but in wow because it was a much smaller team um then i got to have a say in that too which was more fun but it's all copy and paste uh, with small tweaks and usually uh, just like simplifying and having cheaper fabrics. That's the model. 
there is creativity too. Yeah. Like you had you have people there who are great people and who are good and who are creative. Uh, but it's not like the business model doesn't allow for that uh, in an individual sense because it's supposed to reach a mass market and not be that. Um, uh, yeah, it's supposed to not be di different from what everyone else is doing. You know, <laughs> I, I recall a cousin of mine who worked in the fashion industry for a while. He was uh, he's a shoe designer. Mm. But when they would say, oh, we need a loafer for this season, he'd go out and buy all the loafers everyone else was making so that they could work out how to make their own, which was kind of baffling to me at the time. But I could see how it is when you're just basically trying to make stuff like everyone else. Yeah, like we, they, what they do is literally go uh, abroad shopping and bring it back and then send those things to the factories and ask them to make similar that's yeah. basically it I, I often wonder whether people when they start studying fashion and clothes design and things if that's the sort of job they have in mind or whether they think that they're about to enter the glamorous world of fashion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no it was not what i had in mind uh it was very surprising that none of the, the, the that there was so little uh creativity involved but then it depends like this i mean this was a very this is a big company and i uh, but still not big enough that the creatives can be the trend setters in a way it's a curation i guess you could say but if you work in a different company there might be more uh design liberties but it is always like the the sales numbers from the previous years always influence a lot what you're going to do the following year uh so it's 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 kind of like its own little cycle where you're sort of setting the trends but then the sales numbers dictate what you're gonna do and build on for the next year uh which is like we had these trousers that were a bestseller so we'd do this and they had zips on them on the sides of the pockets uh, kind of but they weren't pockets they were obviously just zips because these were women's trousers okay. and the <laughs> and they would all we would alter like if there were two or four or three or like one or, or only two on one side and like we would just change that every season and the colors because they had to be oh. different but we had to keep selling them because they were bestsellers but we couldn't just sell the same ones as last year um and then that's how it all develops and i think that's also how we get for example very distinct uh, girls clothes and boys clothes i mean it's changing a bit now but that kind of trend it's not like malicious that you get these distinctions it's because only the thing that gets sold the most is be being built on for the next season and if you do that long enough instead of getting variety which capitalism is supposed to give us you get very few things because you only get the thing that sells the most you only get like the the main norm boring narrow thing you you lose variety yeah. in sizes and colors and patterns and everything actually ironically enough the distilled version of it yeah uh, yeah so mm. you stuck it out for a few years and then <laughs> what happened 
Uh, yes, I was there for about three years. Um, part of what happened was that I, um, I burned out uh, once there already. <laughs> I've burned out a couple of times. Um, and while I was recovering from that, I sent in an application to be on the Norwegian sewing bee. Uh, so this was in 2015 and uh, I actually got in and I talked to my doctor about it and she agreed that that would be healthy for me uh, when I was good enough but then because I had already been sick for like a few weeks it was not a very bad burnout but it was like bad enough you know uh, that was not super well received at my job I thought it was exciting. I thought that they would think it was cool to have someone on TV who worked with them, yeah. but they did not because uh, that meant that I was putting myself before the job. And obviously you shouldn't do that mm. kind of. So that was, even though I t did it, I used my vacation weeks to go and record, but it was still seen as, uh, like I was told that that was not going to be looked upon in a in a good light from if I wanted to kind of move up in the company um and that was kind of like a shock to me because that just like I I think people want good things for people you know so yeah then when I then was in my and then I was got pregnant right after that um and I had a meeting with a supervisor who told me that who asked if I wanted to come back after because having two kids and we had also moved a little bit further away and having a commute is very taxing and uh, am, am I sure that I want to work there after that because in this job you have to work 110%. Um, and I said that, well, I had thought about it and I know that you have the right to request working 80% uh, when you have kids like that is your right in, as an employee in Norway. So I thought that if I do that, I can be there from nine to three. Almost nothing happens before or after then anyway, kind of. Uh, and it should be fine. And I, I was told that that's, that's, of course, that's your right. But if you do that, you'll never do anything more than what a trainee does, kind of. Like, I'd be stuck to filling out measurement forms. That was the message I got. Uh, and yeah. <laughs> this is the kind of thing I felt like I could talk to talk about before, of course, because the Norwegian fashion industry is very small, and you don't want to burn bridges. Um, but now that I'm like doing so much of my own stuff, I feel like I might as well talk about it because this is, of course, something that a lot of people experience. And I'm building my own tables for all of the people who don't like that kind of. A uh, way of being treated by a company, uh, and the ironic thing was that when I was on my maternity, no, when I was pregnant, I also got sick because I was still burned out, and I, I wanted to push hard. I didn't want to get sick, have sick leave because I had already done the other stuff, so I was feeling guilty. So then I pushed so hard that I got hospitalized, and then I was a lot sicker. And <laughs> this is a repeat pattern in my life, which is why mending has become so important. We'll circle back to that. <laughs> <laughs> can we just also circle back to the Norwegian yeah. sewing bee? Because I can vividly yes. remember you being on it and you did a fantastic ah, job there. Thank you. Can you talk, talk a bit about the experience? <laughs> it was a lot of fun. It was, it was like a creative vacation. 
like I did it despite of it being on TV kind of because I really missed uh, uni. I missed being able to just make all the time. So um, it, it was great fun and it was the environment and the people were just like, it was really socially nice and we were all weirdos who just wanted to sew, you know, and be and be weird in our own ways. Uh, and it is a really strange and stressful experience. So then when you go together through something like that, you do connect in a weird way, even if, or in a special way. Like we have, I haven't managed to keep in touch with most of them, but I still feel like we have a bond because that was a, a it's like a once in a lifetime type thing. It does shape you and how you see yourself and everything. So it's, uh, it was a lot of fun. And it's so nice to have to make things that you don't decide yourself, but that also need to be creative and fun because it really lets you uh, challenge yourself in ways that you don't feel maybe justified to do when you have to spend your spare time on it that we don't have that much of. Um, and another thing that I noticed was that it helped me realize that I was better than I thought I was. Not necessarily in time management, but that that I already knew. <laughs> but the, but that my that if I trusted my creative instincts, kind of if I went with my intuition and didn't overthink things, it actually turned out all right. Um, so I kind of learned that my intuition knows better than my insecurity. That's one of the main things I took from the program, which is very good. Mm. And you stayed on almost yeah, to the end, didn't yeah. you? Yeah, I was in the yeah, I was a finalist. It was very a very close call. Mm. That is very very cool. And also, it was the first <laughs> season, so it was a it was second, a huge deal. Second season. It was the second season. Oh, yes, second. Well, I had very, seen very the cool. first one. <laughs> yeah, I saw the first one and saw that they were nice to each other and not backstabbing and stuff. And then I thought, yeah, I love that that seems fine. I can handle that. Oh. <laughs> that's, that's very well done. Mm. So you found yourself sick and basically out of a job again? Yes. Uh, yeah, those things did not make me uh, want to go back. So it's like I took maternity leave and I was going to have a year paid leave. Not unpaid leave, I mean, on top of that, because family values, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I was still Mormon. and I mean, I think that's still good. Like, I, I do think that that's still a valuable thing. We should have more time with our kids. Uh, but that was like what I was going to do. But I didn't, I, I wanted to get out of that job and find something else in the meantime. And while I was at home breastfeeding several hours a day, I watched a lot of documentaries. <laughs> and I, I already knew the fashion industry was bad, you know, but it's like, I really got to get more knowledgeable about it and it made it even less um appealing to return to a job that didn't want me or appreciate me even though they had to replace me with two people when i quit um so that i feel like that i should be fine working 80 percent if two people are come to replace me but anyway um so then that's when i got interested in mending i watched this uh swedish tv show clothes and quality and they had one episode about mending and that was about traditional mending and it, it I, I just kind of got mesmerized with it it just felt so I don't know grounding maybe it was like this very real thing 
compared to everything else, you know? The whole having a thing and taking care of it <laughs> as if it matters, which is uh, it does in, instead of everything that we consume that doesn't matter. It 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 was it ignited something. Uh, so I got very interested in that at the same time as I also uh, discovered a, a startup called Fair and Square um, who wanted to start their own factory because of the working conditions that are terrible. Uh, because in manufacturing, as most listeners here will know, uh, people, brands outsource the manufacturing to other companies and then you have uh, contracts with them, but you're not responsible. Like you, you'll be like, yeah, but they signed the contract and we don't really know what they're doing. Or the factories will outsource it to other factories because they take on more orders than they can produce, et cetera, et cetera. So the only way that you can actually guarantee anything is if you yourself run and own the factory uh, or know them really, really well. But it's very hard to find and source those kind of things. They don't have Instagram usually, you know? <laughs> I think a lot of it is that it's very convenient for the large brands not to have to take responsibility. Well, yeah, exactly. Yes. But you can do and well, well if you want to. Yes, absolutely. And that was the point of this startup, that it's like, if we can do it and we're a tiny startup because we put the jobs and the people first, then other companies who actually have people who know what they're doing and have the money should also be able to do it. Like there is no excuse. That is a part of the point is, of course, to create good jobs. But another part is to show, look, it can be done. We're doing it and we don't know what the fuck we're doing. Oh, sorry. And we don't know what we're doing. <laughs> so, so then at least you should be able to. So then anytime there's a news uh, report about some goal that some uh, fast fashion brand ha have promised that they will do and they haven't met it, or they say that it's too hard, then the company I worked for can be like, but we're doing it. Like, so why aren't yeah. we? Uh, and it's all about uh, wanting to make profits and everything. I mean, it is a very complex system and it's very hard to turn around a huge ship. Like, in Varnegruppen, we had 300 factories or something that we were working with and staying on top. And they have their subcontractors, you know, so, so it when you have that kind of system, it's kind of impossible, uh, <laughs> which is why I thought it was so good with these uh, with fair and square, because they they cut out kind of all of that. And then you have the one factory and you make sure that they have it well there. So I supported their crowdfunding that they did it was the most expensive t-shirt i had ever bought in my life and it felt crazy and <laughs> it was it was yeah. like 40 pounds uh, and then i emailed them in the fall uh asking if maybe i could help them out with something like a print or something because i just wanted to be a part of it because they were doing the thing i had seen as the only solution to be able to justify making new clothes it's like if you're gonna make new clothes you have to at least like do it to try to replace the people who do it with shitty jobs then maybe you could justify making some new items uh, and then because if you do enough of that then we'll have a lot less consumption because the clothes get more expensive and you'll be making fewer clothes overall so it's like that is one way to do this that is also environmentally meaningful uh, just from another angle and i emailed them and they 
they had a graphic designer, they had the guy who started it all, and they had the guy who's going to be the manager in China. They had no one who could anything about clothes or pattern cutting ah. or anything. <laughs> yeah. They had one who had helped with one pattern. Shout out to Mari Melilot. Um, but she didn't have time to continue with that. She had other things going on. So then I got sucked into helping them. Um, and I, I helped them a bit. And then I realized that I can't help them for free while being on unpaid maternity leave in this other company. So I uh, booked a meeting and I took the bus to my other company and said that I quit. And then it's been <laughs> a, a joyful ride, a, a rough ride ever since. That was in 2016. Mm. <laughs> so then I worked with. So are you Paris still working with? I've now, um, I burned out in 2018. Like I started working with them. I got a little bit paid after a while. Um, I worked way too much because I had still not figured out anything about boundaries and self-care or anything like that. That didn't exist to me in my life. Um, so I just kind of gave everything that I had while I was breastfeeding a newborn-ish, not newborn, but then he was half a year. Um, and uh, because I had so little income, I also worked on the side with redesigning wedding dresses and uh, redesigning wedding dresses into uh, christening dresses as well. And I did uh, some teaching and stuff on the side too. And uh, and in the end I burned out and I burned out like hard, <laughs> like <laughs> because I couldn't burn out because the company depended on me completely. Um, I had to keep going until we got far enough that someone could step in and, and kind of take over some of the stuff that I did. And by the time that happened, I, I, I mean, that was in 2018 that I burned out and I'm still, I'm still not well. Um, and I don't know what's that and what is like, after that, I've also gotten an ADHD diagnosis. And, you know, there's all of these things that a lot of women nowadays are realizing and going through. So I don't know how much of it was that job and how much of it was just all of my life and everything. And in all of that, I also left the Mormon church in the middle of that a year before I burned out. So then it's a whole existential crisis and uh, on top of it, which made me push even more into the uh, that startup because that was something that at least that was a good thing to do, uh, you know, <laughs> and uh, and then I just kind of have had to try to build back up from the ground, but um, but without much support from uh, like the the social security system that we're supposed to have in Norway doesn't really work when you're self-employed. Um, so yeah, it's yeah. been a ride. <laughs> And it's it, but it's been very informative, and I feel like I have a lot to to share and 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 um, stuff now because of those things, because of how I've tried to climb my way out of that situation. So, am I <laughs> sensing that the mending isn't just about mending your clothes, but maybe it's, in a wider perspective? Yes, it's absolutely about everything else. Um, 
So I actually, when uh, for a while, I sometimes I use the word soul mending because it's it's about mending my soul or whatever that is. <laughs> um, and I started mending about a year before I left the church, two years before I burned out. And I could tell that it was important before all of those things happened. And I could, and I learned lessons from it, but I didn't manage to apply them. Lessons such as that, that it, uh, things are valuable, even if they are tired <laughs> or seem worn out or are stained or like all of these things. And that, um, like one thing, especially with, with, with how I interpreted my religion, at least, um, there's a lot about being like clean and pure and perfect. And that if you do bad things, you are forgiven and kind of return to a clean state. While with mending, you just kind of infuse love into something so that it continues to grow and evolve, which I think is a much healthier and more uh, beautiful uh, way of relating to to life and, and your own personal growth and identity as well. It um, helps you not stagnate. The, the old way of thinking was very, um, yeah, it, it's, it infantilizes you in many ways. So that was definitely something that was influencing my mindset through that process um, but especially just the whole breaking out of the idea of tying your value to to looks or to productivity or efficiency and all of these things um, because when you sit down and mend something, especially when you mend it by hand and you spend a very, very long time on it, you're going against all of the stuff we're indoctrinated with about how we need to be uh, productive. We need to do things the fastest way possible. And we, I mean, we are, we're very efficient now, but we don't have any more free time. And we are so efficient that the times that the things that we used to enjoy doing are no longer enjoyable because they have to be done efficiently. Uh, so it's like we're, we're our productivity makes us run away from life itself. And uh, mending is a great way to break that pattern. And when you break that pattern in one area of your life, um, I find that it's a lot easier to start taking that feeling and that grounding and, and start to try to uh, import it into other areas of your life as well. Which sort of areas would that be? Um, I mean, because it, 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 it is with everything. It's it, uh, whether it's uh, cooking or exercise or uh, relationships or anything. If you stop, it's about stopping. It's about like pulling the brakes. And if you do that, then everything becomes different and you can approach every part of your life in a different way. And, and, and mending by hand is kind of like a template for me that I then try to see, okay, how can I apply these principles that I'm learning in mending uh, to the other things that I have to do in life to make those more beautiful and valuable and meaningful and to not try to do them in the way we've been told, but in a way that gives me meaning and gives 
those things meaning and kind of infuse it with life and with creativity and with the process, being focused on the process instead of the end result. And I think that can be done in large areas of, of you, your life. We were, we were talking about how um, you can mend yourself like you mend clothes, but for ourselves, we go to the doctor yeah. and we get some tablets and we're supposedly all good. And when you're mending things, you can either mend them to be functional again so a, a least mm. viable alternative i suppose but <laughs> you want to make them not just functionally better but also more beautiful yeah and i haven't re i mean that was good because this is kind of interesting because i haven't thought of it with the beautiful as much in the context of kind of self-healing because the beautiful part was more for me, when I started with it, it was more a marketing tool. It was marketing for mending. You know, it's a way to to elevate it so that people can um, can enjoy it. And then it's become more meaningful and deeper as I've worked on it. Uh, but but the, when it comes to the self care, it's been I've been thinking of it in a more practical sense because just the mending in itself, uh, without it being beautiful uh, or being attempted to be more beautiful is still uh, beautiful but also necessary and that is a, a thing that has taught me a lot uh, about working on setting boundaries and working on self-care is how long it can take to mend things well you know and and that that labor that goes into it it's not necessarily especially reinforcing and strengthening and and all those things are not necessarily that visible but they're still the most essential and necessary parts. So that's been a way to kind of learn that it's okay to spend time on things that other people can't see either. Um, so what you're saying now with also the beautiful part, um, beyond, because that is very true and it really gets a lot to the core uh of my sort of new philosophy on on life about how it should be about like love and creativity and beauty and not just functionality which is as you said what if you go to the doctor it's about becoming functional again it's about being able to step back into your job again basically um becoming another machine in the cog you know but not actually having a a beautiful life like that's that's not the goal of society <laughs> but if that were the goal i think we would have a much more healthy and happy and productive society as well um so focusing if you focus just on the beauty it falls apart because you don't have the stability to attach it to like you do need the grounding the the, the kind of foundation that makes it secure and durable so you can't just focus on, on the aesthetics or on the uh, luxury or on the, you know, on the, on, on the Instagram preview of your life. If you only do that, it falls apart. If it, but if you only did the functionality, you lose that on the joy and everything is a chore. Uh, but when you combine the two, that's a, a very good foundation, I think, for living your life. 
Yeah. So that was yeah, nice. I, I, I can see how easy it is easy it is to get sort of mixed up in the words here because while a repair to a pair of trousers may be beautiful, <laughs> repairing your life, beauty maybe doesn't apply. But as you said, happiness would be an equivalent. Yeah. And while you're having a yeah. more beautiful pair of trousers and a happier life, both are good goals. Mm. I, don't, I don't think having a more beautiful yeah. life, an Instagram preview <laughs> version of life, makes anyone really very happy at all. It's just uh, part of the rat race. Now, I think that what we are sold, and that's the thing that's so hard, they are a mirror of things that actually bring us joy. But when you do the things to experience joy, then they're empty, kind of. But it, like, if you go out to take pictures of yourself in the sunset, like if you're doing it just because it looks like you're happy if you do it, it doesn't necessarily bring you much joy, but that doesn't mean that you cannot find an immense amount of joy watching the sunset. Uh, but you can find that joy also in like watching a little drop of water on a tiny leaf in the forest. Um, so there, there is a lot of beauty in the beautiful, but when it's but have you truly experienced joy if you haven't taken a photo of it? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, and that is something I think is really tricky and weird also when working on Instagram because it's it's um, it's a very interesting space to be in when you're trying and that is what so many people are doing now like we are trying to connect back with the real world by showing each other online that we are enjoying the real world too in a way <laughs> uh, it's like a reappreciation at least a lot of my content that I get with my algorithms and stuff are a lot of uh, a lot of people who are searching back to um, a more grounded, simple life where you appreciate processes more than results, kind of, and and uh, you know think about th um, appreciate more of the locally sourced things, whether it's food or plants or whatever that you're. Uh, actually getting to know your world physically a lot of people are on that path like a lot of people it's very exciting to see but then to get there we kind of have to find enough people who appreciate that and we find that by talking about it and showing it online which is very paradoxical and and a very strange space to be in but it's it, it seems like it's working because I think people who have been through a similar process like that, um, you start understanding when people are genuine about it and when they're not. It's like you can tell when someone just kind of replicates a quote that they've heard and when they've actually kind of internalized it. And then you know that you're not alone and then you can get some hope that maybe some things are getting better and that people are starting to um, to understand a bit more and kind of want to disconnect from the rat race and, and the consumption and that people are finding other values. But then we have to market it. <laughs> so, you know, we have to market those values, which is what marketing does, but they're marketing those values and then trying to sell you a product like they're, you know, you co-op. It's always a co-option of ideas or values that are important, 
and then you, you sell a product that doesn't solve it. So like you'll have an advertisement that is about relationships, for example, like friendships and connection and family, and then you sell Coke um, or butter or jam. But what you're trying to sell is, is the community feeling and that you're supposed to get that if you buy the product, you know? So yeah. it's very, it's, it's very, it's tricky to then find ways to mark, to market how to do those things without selling a product and to find a way to make a living off of building that when, when it is kind of anti-capitalist at its core, <laughs> you know? I guess really it's it's the influencer it's the it's the influencer paradox yeah. really yeah. whereby if for an influencer to be genuine you have you can't realize that they are paid to yeah. sell you stuff but the moment they have to declare that they are selling mm -hmm. you stuff you don't believe in them and they yeah. they collapse so it, it's a very hard I can see how you're finding that yeah, difficult yeah it's it's a very interesting thing and one thing that I've thought about lately was it's uh, in order to live a more authentic and life and a, and a slower life that is possible now because of social media, because you can gain a following and you can sell whether it's services or products or, or, or whatever it is. Um, but the cost of doing that is that you're commodifying your own life your authentic personal life, you kind of commodify that in order to have access to live it, which is also a very interesting paradox because that that is the problem, right? Not now we're getting into economics because that's the problem with uh, eternal economic growth that more and more things have to become consumables. And in the end, it's like we're going full circle yeah. now almost as like, you can return back to the simple life, but only if you sell yourself in the process for other people to kind of uh, enjoy you enjoying your simple life. <laughs> it's weird. And of course, if you're then having a business based on the simple life, you're also spending a lot of your day on promotion yeah, yeah. of this. My life is not simple Which yet. is stopping you from leading your yes. simple life. <laughs> yes, but that is why no, that's why no one's free before everyone's free, because we have to like get there together. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but this kind of brings us to where you are today, I think. Yes, because you now have a company, a small company, mm -hmm. where you sell mending yeah. stuff. I sell mending supplies. I started it in 2020 when the pandemic hit uh, because then I had no more uh, wedding dresses to sew or workshops to teach. Um, and I, ha I had been planning on maybe selling some stuff on workshops, kind of. But then the pandemic come and came and I was like, I have no idea how long this is going to take. Um, I might as well make a bigger shop. Um, and the idea was also that because I know how business works, it was, uh, and I was burned out and sick, uh, I kind of had to bite the bullet and realize that if I was going to manage to make a living, I had to 
be I had to sell other people's labor as in I had to sell stuff because that's how you can make money like that's how that's how you escape yeah. by exploiting other people um more or less uh, and and selling products there will be exploitation there unless you manage to do everything completely right and uh, you can't do that when you start with nothing um so that now I'm writing the book and that I have an employee and that I don't really have enough money to make things work, but that I kind of just count on that it will. So, so basically, I think you have now gone from exploiting yourself to, we can playfully say, exploiting others, but really you're just uh, joining this sort of uh, business mindset of... yes. To survive, you must earn money, and if you can earn money doing something you genuinely believe is good, then that is better than copy-pasting zippy trousers for women. <laughs> I think my yeah, I think my idea is that we have to when we we have to manage to live in the gray area if we're going to manage to make an impact like we 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 can't not use any of the tools because then we just suffer <laughs> and then we're not managing to do anything if we can't even help ourselves we can't help other people either we have to have some sense of financial freedom and time freedom in order to make an impact and um, that can be a very hard thing to manage to kind of find that balance and i think we often do either one or the other like we think we can't do anything about it and keep being employed somewhere but then we're still a part of a system that's not great um or we have to try to step out but we can't do it perfectly anyway you know like if i kept working in another company i would it's kind of like um giving up responsibility and now i am responsible for the things i'm not managing to do yet i'm more responsible for it <laughs> than if i'm employed but i'm still making more of a positive difference than if i was just employed uh and i I think a core to the whole thing is to trust that I actually am good like, and that I will keep doing better and better as I have the opportunity and to trust that as I grow and learn, I will keep uh, improving how I run my business as well and to be open to pivot and change uh, according to my personal understanding uh, and opportunities as, they, as, as that develops. Um, and to know that 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 we can't do things perfectly, but we can try, and trying is better than not trying. Well, the strange thing is that you sound entirely genuine, and I believe you when you say that, but large companies who <laughs> it should be much easier for don't come across as genuine, and you're also working to reduce consumption by really not buying new stuff i mean obviously you do want people to buy spend some money and buy repair kits yes i, I am selling things while i'm trying to not sell things yes really 
Yeah. You're selling things so that people won't buy more things, maybe. It's a paradox. Again, there are a lot of paradoxes. <laughs> but again, it's a question of scale and a question of intent. Um, what one of the one of the huge paradoxes of our time, at least here in Norway, is how everyone has is believing that by buying electric cars we will save the planet. So Norwegians, I think about yeah. every ninth or tenth Norwegian has now bought a new electric car. Which, if you think about it, yeah. can't possibly be saving the planet in any meaningful way. Not if you didn't need that car in the first place, like if you didn't need a new one. Um, and yeah, then there's problems with batteries and everything. But I think that's that's why when I started the whole mending idea, I was very hung up on thinking of how it can be scaled and how it can be commercialized in order for it to have a big enough scale to make a meaningful impact and to kind of play into, and that's the whole with the, with the visible part to play into making it uh, commercial and appealing so that even kind of fast fashion brands can implement it into their business. Um, because even though hand mending is very slow, you can still take a lot of those things and make it faster with embroidery machines or with screen printing or with if you pre-make designs and even if you make clothes more repairable and plan for that sort of thing, you can you can have ways that things can be mended in beautiful or more fun ways that are still sort of efficient and scalable and, and can be commercial. So that was my um that was kind of my plan first because if we're going to have impact, companies do need to think that they can make money on it. They do need to um, be able to implement it into their current ways of working. But then the more I work with it, you, uh, the, the more I work with it, the more I realize how that it that way of thinking and that way of trying to make it fit into the business world as it is, is part of the problem because it ruins it. It, it takes away the slow process, you know, and, and it, it is the stopping, it is the pausing, it is the doing it yourself. It is having the connection with the making process. It is having the relationships uh, that you make with your garments, but not just that, but, but like when you mend your clothes, and you use the things that you have, or you have, they get the story themselves. And, and that story is different when you mend it yourself, or when if someone you know mends it for you and stuff like that, than if you send it and some random person you don't know does it. And these connections are such a big part of what we have lost and why nothing feels valuable even though we have so many things of that should be of value because they're not connected to us in any meaningful way. Um, so the more I work with it, the more I feel like my path will be much more to focus on community building around mending and making to kind of hook up with other people who do that. Um, 
which is what I see so many people are coming to that conclusion, like whether it's in farming or dying or anything, it's like that is kind of where people on this path I'm on end up in a way. But then by doing that and the, the deeper I go into that, then the people who do commercial things uh, and are still in that business mindset, they can still be inspired by the things we're doing and commercialize it. And it can be kind of like a, a funnel, like a sales funnel for for a healthy way of living, for like gradually changing it. Um, but, but I don't think I want to scale it like that. And that is one of the hardest and scariest things when you realize that scaling is a part of the problem. So how then can you kind of break free by scaling big enough to to be free yeah. <laughs> it doesn't really work <laughs> so it's um and that's when i have to rely on that the things i'm learning from it about the value of community and and relationships and authenticity that those things actually uh, are as meaningful and important as i believe that they are and to trust that that will kind of um become a safety net in and of itself in this process. Right. I, I could scary. see the problem of trying to sell, say, repair kits to fashion companies because you would risk it becoming just something more that they would sell. Perhaps it would be fashionable, which then would imply that it might become unfashionable. But for them, it would just be another product that if it sold well enough, they'd do it another year. And it would diminish yeah everything you were about um interesting about communities because we've yeah. been for years now involved in community farming where a lot mm -hmm. of us rent a piece of farm area field uh grow yeah. vegetables together where everyone shares in the work mm -hmm. and also in the result and that kind of works, but communities are definitely the way forward because it's really hard on your own. Mm. Sorry if I derailed your thought there. No, 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 but uh, no, I, and that's what I said before with the that it's the same principles, but they can be applied in different areas. But I think, but so much of it uh, does return back into creating, whether it's clothes or food or whatever it is, uh, in in a more basic form, in a less industrial form, and to do it more locally. Uh, that that That's kind of <laughs> the radicalization that happens when you start thinking about ethics and sustainability. It seems to me that that's where most people end up, regardless of where they started out and what part of the world they are. I feel like if they're really genuine about that search for solutions. And I think that's a positive thing, because if everyone's kind of, or everyone, if a lot of people are ending up in that same conclusion, um then maybe there's something to it and maybe enough people will eventually get there that it could change things i keep thinking about what you were saying about how product development worked where you'd keep improving or keep reintroducing what sold well the year before and, and how that has led us to where we mm. are now and how mm difficult it must be to try to reverse or even unpick a little of that process 
when I was talking to Rosanna Watson of Snowdonia Gear Repair, she was saying how the products made today aren't made to be repaired. Yeah. But they, they could easily they could actually easily make them so you could repair them. Yeah, I just listened to that episode actually. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and I th and that is one of the but benefits that would come if mending became fashionable enough that it could become a part of um, more normal business practices. Like my my business sales pitch is that if you can make commercialized mending designs that can be done half automatically, uh, you can get people to you, you give added value to the garment so people are actually willing to pay for the mend and they can pay to have it repaired again and again so you make money on the same clothes over and over it's great you know it, it should be everyone should be on board with that like it's it works like it also in a businesses it should work uh, even though you have to invest in in a slightly different creative process you have to invest in some machines but it's like it is a way for businesses to be more sustainable and, and to be able to keep selling, to keep the economy grow, going, not necessarily growing, but going uh, without selling new things all the time. But um, yeah, but, and then the positive thing with that is that if they start doing that, they will very quickly see what falls apart first. And we, like once you start having to mend it, it becomes very apparent that it's not very efficient the way that it's made and that they could start designing because then there would be an incentive to start designing things that would be easy to, to upgrade or fix or adjust uh, if that becomes a part of what you're selling. If you sell the services, you'll, you'll, the, the design process will automatically have to change. Um, but, but then you have to either want to do it enough yourself that to make your business survive if the, there's enough pressure kind of from society or legislation we'll see what happens with that um or i was gonna say or <laughs> no but you, like if you don't like uh yeah otherwise you're not gonna you're not gonna be willing to go through that process because it is a process that that takes some time and effort um, but, but but what i think needs to happen is that i think a lot of the big companies that exist today kind of need to disappear like i don't think most of them can manage to transition and i think that in that is also a problem with businesses that they do not change enough it's like people they get we, we're good in one thing and then it's like now we need to do this thing and if we, we <laughs> And then instead of when you actually fulfill your purpose or like everyone has what they need, instead of then taking the resources you have, whether financial or skill-based experience network, and then figure out a new thing that you can do building on that, that is also covering a human need. You're like, oh no, now we need to make people buy more of the thing, even though they don't need it. Like, and we could release so much potential if or companies, didn't like identify as their end result and this goes again into the mending but saw themselves more as processes that could give new life to new products or services or whatever it is that you don't need to scale the same company and then hold it there or keep it growing but that you could actually transform 
as the needs are fulfilled in a way, but that doesn't happen. Um, but that would be a huge transformation if it could happen. Yeah. Because the, every company consists of lots of potential and lots of different um, possibilities, but, but, but with very rigid structures and very set ideas about what it needs to be, if it, you know, then, then it's hard to change and adapt uh, as needed. And then we make people want things they don't need, and then they well, buy them. <laughs> as we know, happiness is only truly available through uh, continued growth and prosperity. That's me being sarcastic. Growth or change, <laughs> maybe. But I do, I do wonder. Change, continued change, definitely. There are a lot of companies now offering free repairs for life, and I think that sounds like a terrific idea. Yeah. But then I'm thinking, if everyone mm. who bought their product came back and wanted free repairs for life, clearly the model would break down pretty quickly because it really only works when it's used mainly yeah. as an advertising point and only a few customers come back. Yeah. But as you were saying, it might exactly. actually make them then make better products in the first place because people wouldn't come back mm -hmm. wanting their free repairs. Mm -hmm. But then again, it would be like selling a pair of shoes that yeah. would last you a lifetime because you can't really have a business where you only sell your customer one product either. There's just so many paradoxes here, mixing no. and interchanging. The whole idea of... <laughs> but the whole idea is that we actually have enough stuff. Like, we could be free to enjoy making the things we want to make for ourselves and each other. But because the economy has to survive and the companies have to survive, we're forced to keep making things that no one necessarily really wants exactly as they are in, in mass-produced ways. And you have lots of people who are trying to survive making things that they really want to make. And then you have lots of people who are slaving away and literally dying, um, making things that are not meaningful or or custom made for anyone's you know needs, and and it's it's just really tragic that you have these two things at the same time, because it's not like people want to make things. People love making things. Uh, maybe not everyone, but enough people. But it's hard to do that when you have to compete with slave labor. Uh, <laughs> so so it's like. To me, this the solution. That's the that that's what I'm trying to say with what I do is that things can be better. Like and to 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 live more sustainably is actually nice and meaningful and a good thing and will give us more joy and happiness. It's not a sacrifice. But the transition to get there when we live with the type of economy that we do. It's very hard because if you just if you just if you force it, there's going to be a lot of collateral damage because people depend on the economy in the way that it works. But it doesn't work. Um, that's the problem. Yeah. I think part of the problem in talking about these things is also that it's not just one tiny little problem that. You can sort of find an easy solution to it's it's a it's a sort of global 
hugely complex system where it's taken decades yes. and centuries to reach the point it is today. And I, I kind of think of it like the Death yeah. Star in Star Wars, where Luke Skywalker has to find that little way in which <laughs> might make it all implode. But there isn't yeah. any way in. And I don't know, the change has to come yeah. from within the Death Star or something like that. But uh, Yes, it does. No, but it has, yeah, it has to come from within each person. And we all have to fight for our own freedom and liberty to live more beautiful, happy lives. And then kind of work from there and try to let help other people do the same. And if enough people do that, I, that, I feel like that's kind of the best chance we've got. Because if you don't do that, any system that is forced, even if it's for good things, if it is forced, it's 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 gonna end with it's gonna end badly. <laughs> um, so yeah, it 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 is very much an individual liberation process in order to help the collective become more free. To I think it's all very very bleak. I, I did want to ask you: Are you still doing? Um... <laughs> <laughs> doing uh, repair evenings, uh, talks to people, introducing them to practicalities of repairs. I do give workshops uh, and presentations sometimes. I've been doing it less now because I'm working really hard on trying to finish my book. So right now I'm like, I, I'm, I'm not taking on anything until that's done, but that needs to be done by like now. <laughs> So when that is done, I am hoping to do a lot more of it. Uh, and I'm opening, um, one of my goals is to open uh, what's called a kind of like a third space, a place that's not your work or your home, mm -hmm. but also not uh, a place you shop. <laughs> so somewhere to hang out for people that have has mending supplies available. Um, and that's going to be in this... Um, cooperative new mall or new it's in an old factory in Oslo that is being remodeled remodel or remade to become a, a upcycle uh, type mall that should become the biggest in Norway with lots of stuff happening and in there I'm going to be selling things from my shop but I also want to create a space that's like separate from where I sell things. Um, and that could then also be a, a space where I would be holding workshops and, and, and gatherings and work on that community part and start testing that out. <laughs> um, and I want to have like, I want it to be a mix between a library and a sewing nook in a way and a gallery so that you also mix uh, and play with the, the lines between art and crafts and like, because we, 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 there are very blurred lines between what is a craft and what is art, and I think it would be nice to to get more people involved in those blurred lines through collaborative projects, or, but also by uh, exhibiting the work of people who have been mending but ne not necessarily seen themselves as artists. But like, if they have been mending something for ten years um, by hand that 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 can hang there like that could be that is art even if they don't see themselves as an artist so like just a a, a space for people to play and share and learn and think and read 
and hang out. Um, and I hope I can manage. I've applied for some grants and stuff for it. And I'll probably try some crowdfunding and things because I'm going to have to pay rent. But uh, I think it could be a really, a really, really nice um, space to keep building um, these concept and concepts and ideas that I'm working with. When you're thinking about this, what sort of people do you think um, will like this idea and and come come to you? <laughs> At least my customers to start with, <laughs> the ones that are based in Oslo. Um, but I, th I, there are other or people doing similar-ish things that could bring their customer or their their group base group base because. Um, to it, but I'm also hoping to uh, reach out to, for example, schools, um, teenagers. I want to reach more teenagers than I currently do. I have uh, a TikTok account that uh, is growing a bit, so it, it, there's potential. <laughs> I can see that what I'm doing is um, once they find me, they like it kind of, but it's not necessarily the thing that the algorithm will feed them right away. Um, so I think that that would be very good because I think that the the message about the message is that you can learn from what I'm I'm doing that are sorely needed amongst young people who are trying to find their way uh, and and are worried about climate and and everything. I think it would be good to have like a safe space with some adults that are trying to do something about it you know and to 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 build something there but we'll see i was just sitting here thinking about how as children we loved making things yeah but then later on in life that became much less important because we could buy stuff yeah and once we're in that buying mindset you always want more you want new uh, better but maybe if you can uh, reach the kids a bit earlier, you might be able to do something there. Yeah. There is the, Influence them at an early age. Yeah. And I think if I can get through, uh, if I can start it through contact with schools, that might be a, a way in. Uh, because there won't be most people in your school interested, but there will be some. You know, and for them, it might be very important. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Little is better than nothing. Yes. I think. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, uh, like... You did youth... mention... Yeah. <laughs> no, no, keep now, going. As you say, youth are, you know, they, they, like, they are often... Um, they are either very conform or very oppositional. So, you know, there's, there's hope <laughs> amongst the oppositional ones. <laughs> at least yeah what were you saying and of course if you are reaching them on tiktok you you might be able to hold their attention for 15 seconds or something yes no but i i, I think that there's a lot that uh people who are young now actually uh, understand i feel like they're given like i i look up to so many teenagers and i feel like 
there's a lot that they understand that I have only started to learn when I'm in my 30s and they're kind of understanding it now and I understand why they are frustrated and or depressed and everything because why how can you not be when the world is the way it is and we're aware of it like it makes complete sense so I don't think they're lazy I don't think they're you know failures I don't think they're weak it's like they're just having to deal with a lot of really difficult stuff right in a very difficult age things that were, were not as obvious and were more in the periphery when I was growing up so you knew about it but it wasn't like that uh, obvious and present so I I, I, I think that um, if we give them chances to to do things and kind of open doors I think we can I'm curious to see what will happen, and I'm going to try to do that. Mm. Yeah. Now, I know where I can find you every Monday lunchtime. <laughs> Could you talk a bit about that? Yeah, I sit in front of the Norwegian Parliament in silence for climate between 11 and 12. And it was started by Norwegian actress and activist Iselin Shumba. Um, several years ago it must have been 2019 i think i always forget um and it's kind of been i've, I've taken the torch and it's me and um big this yeah um we sit there most mondays um and with a sign and people walk by and some people think it's dumb and a lot of people think it's great but uh yeah so we sit there and one of the things i'm planning on doing when i'm done with my book is sitting a lot more places a lot more time <laughs> uh <laughs> mending visibly uh but with maybe some more information available and maybe talk to people and do more uh kind of face-to-face -face interactions uh about mending You've mentioned the book a few times now. Yeah. What is it about? It's about visible mending. And it's it is a it's a tutorial type book that teaches you how, it'll teach you how to do things and how to do them durably uh, and not yeah, it'll and it, it it covers everything from patching, darning and embroidery and how to combine them and a lot of like materials and tools and it's like you're the a, a first guide to it but it's also going to talk about a, some of the stuff that we've talked about today trying to put it into a, a bigger more holistic perspective and both showing both about how we can be valuable even when we are broken and that we don't need shame we need care and love like that part of it um but also the need to to slow down and how sitting and mending and doing things slowly um can kind of help us unpro deprogram or reprogram our mind uh, a bit um so i hope it'll be a a door opener for people to start thinking a bit differently and see hope and solutions in change instead of uh, challenges and worry and stuff like that. 
and it's going to have lots of pretty pictures. <laughs> a beautiful <laughs> mending. Oh, that's uh, and uh, a happy life, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Do you find you're happier now that you're mending more? Yes. Uh, but I think my my the more I mend, the happier I am, kind of. But it's very hard to carve out the time to mend. Um, but also, I have gotten to where I can also sit in the forest a lot, for example. So basically, the the the, the more I manage to cut out things and um, allow myself to do the things that I want to do, the better. And I think a lot of that comes back to what I've talked about before with like trusting that you're a good person in a way. And I think I believe that most people are good, but that we're all caught up in a lot of pressures and ideologies and beliefs um, and fear and trauma and things that make us act in, in ways that are not beneficial. But I think most people, if they have uh, their basic needs covered, uh, and that includes emotional and psychological and like how you view yourself and all of these things. Most what most people want is to like contribute or to to be of of use or to be nice, you know, contribute something that's nice um, to the world. And so, step one is for me to believe that about myself and let myself do more of the things I enjoy and mending and and making things and being outside and looking at moss and lichen and stuff like that is a part of that and when i let myself do that i'm happier definitely i don't know if you've read uh johan hari's books but he has a, a one out now called lost focus about how we're being we're losing focus by everything that's interrupting us yeah. and disturbing our lives his previous book was about um depression and one of the mm. his recommendations there was to spend time in the wood yeah and i, I agree it yeah. is very therapeutic being in the wood it is and also turning off your notifications and uh allowing less interruptions to your life yeah and I, when i am in the woods it it reminds me how everything is interconnected and dependent on each other kind of like you you, be, you become more a part of the physical actual world and you and you kind of it, it's very grounding and one thing that i find is that it's um it, if you connect with the idea of everything being connected instead of feeling small and insignificant it's like your i you your whole self can expand and you expand to become a part of everything instead um which can feel very, it's scary because in a way you lose yourself, but it's also very nice because you become very securely attached to everything and you're not alone anymore. <laughs> so, and that is something that I think um, is a lot easier when you're out in nature because everything there is alive and moving and it's in a constant process of change um which is kind of what is what i replicate with the mending this continuous process where something is something and then it transforms and gradually becomes something else until it uh, returns to the dirt and grows up as something new and that is kind of the continuous process that we as humans try to escape 
by making things that like are supposed to never change uh, and by staying in our heads instead of in our bodies. Um, but then by returning to those processes, um, we, we become more like bigger and more whole again, because that is, a, we are a part of those processes, whether we, we like it or not, you know. <laughs> Listening to what you're saying there, I, I keep coming back to thinking that what most young people today want to be is, is famous. Yeah. Famous on social media, famous really for nothing more than being apparently happy and beautiful. And then I think about how many people become famous, but they become desperately unhappy. They can't cope with the fame yeah. and they just basically go mad. So why are they we wanting to yearning for a, such a destructive life when we can just sit in the woods and <laughs> be happy? Because it's what we're marketed. Like it's what we're told will make us happy. I was just about to say that's a that's a really dark point we've arrived at in this conversation. <laughs> I think it's interesting that you think it's dark because for me it's kind of bright, okay? Because for me, the thing that has happened is that my personal chase for happiness and joy is interconnected with my the work that I do to try to improve things. And but I have also come to the realization that I cannot do those things unless I also make myself happy. Like I, I used to try to sacrifice to make things better. And I have realized that that doesn't work because there is not enough of me to give if I'm only giving um, and never giving myself enough to be stronger. Um, so my conclusion after several years of trying to be an entrepreneur and an activist and a good person and all of these things, my conclusion is that I cannot do the things, I cannot make an impact and make things better by suffering. I have to actually have a good life and in doing so give of my access, which means that my personal work for happiness is not separate from improving the world um but it's i have but then i have to scale things down right like it has to be smaller but more impactful in in that area and then it's, it's and then so then for me personally there's hope because i no longer see my happy life as an obstacle to improving the world and that is really good news because if I can live that and I can show that that's the case, then it's not that much of a hard sell because who doesn't want to have a happier and better life? And if a happier and better life for ourselves is also better for other people, then we can create really good synergies and things can actually improve. But I think the general idea is that we have to suffer to improve things, that it's like it's a sacrifice, like good people sacrifice, bad people take. But if that's not true, <laughs> and if if us liberating ourselves makes us able to liberate others, that that's that's great news. Like that means that it could work. The idea we have to suffer is the is it's the myth that we kind of have to kill. Suffering happens anyway in life. Like we can't avoid it, but it's not necessary to make more of it like we should minimize it at all costs 
people don't get worse if they don't suffer enough kind of because suffering just happens <laughs> that's my <Okay. laughs> uh, that's my thing so to me it's 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 actually not that bleak <laughs> okay i'll go with that i'll go with that <laughs> maybe there's maybe i'm still too young and naive but I've fought hard to return to young and naive from a much more destructive place. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Is there anything we haven't yeah. talked about now that you'd like to talk about or include? We've covered a pretty broad range, I think. Um, but I, I do think I want to just end on like, that to me it is actually a positive thing it's a big because if we can make things better by making our own lives better by actually reconnecting with what is actually valuable um it's it's a hard fight because it's very difficult to break out of the system in a way that allows you to do that but it does mean that there is some hope that that we can improve our own lives while contributing um and to hold the space for knowing that that is enough kind of and that that is the most we can do um because if we do more we <laughs> we we rip apart we burn out we, we it doesn't it doesn't work um we will be uh used up so we an important part of the fight is to care for ourselves and by caring for ourselves we uh, create less suffering in the world <laughs> overall and we can build ourselves up in order to be able to give of our excess and if and that's how we can become a you know how we can thrive more if everyone can be responsible for for giving of their excess and taking the time that they need to get there like that can take years but if you're a good person and you keep sacrificing before you actually have enough to give it doesn't work but people who are taught to to be good <laughs> and to they will do that if no one tells them otherwise and then we keep having lots of exhausted people everywhere who can't do anything so i think self-love is like it's at the core of it. It's this belief that humans are bad, I think is what is destroying us. Like that paradigm that we are bad and that we need to suffer and earn things. Uh, I don't believe that that is true. I believe that we have needs and that that makes sense because we are in these biological bodies, uh, but that doesn't make us bad and i believe most people want to give and share and contribute and i think there are many more ways to contribute than the ways that we're paid for and i think most of the ways that we're paid for like most of the things we contribute with that are the most meaningful are often the things that are not paid for and we need to fight to be able to give more of those things again to have more time and freedom um to do that and then we will also have more meaningful and happy lives <laughs> yeah. and and w when you're talking about this you're talking about us as humans but it keeps striking me that 
you could be talking about repairing our things because it just seems so similar about repairing ourselves, repairing our trousers, improving. And yeah, as we spoke about previously, um, profound, really. And yes, exactly. It is the same as it is with mending, because if you learn to appreciate that process and you're not thinking of the end result, and I mean, this is what all meditation and like all of this stuff is about. It's just like the whole living in the moment, right? And if you can enjoy that mending and infuse love into the moment or into the mend there and then, then you have this ongoing continuous process that makes something transform and come alive and connect to things and uh, continue. And it doesn't have a kind of a beginning and it doesn't have an end. Um, but it's a beautiful process full of creativity, care, and compassion. And on that <laughs> positive note, I think we might have reached the end. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I'll uh, put some links to your various um, websites and uh, TikTok accounts and things in the show notes. And... Yes. Oh, and I do have a buy me a coffee as well. Uh, so that's also a thing. I do need help with what I'm doing. Very good. At the moment. And thank you so much for joining me today, Eva. <laughs> it was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And uh, bye bye for bye now. Bye for now. <laughs> And that's all for this week's episode of Garmology. If you'd like to check out my guest further, there's links in the show notes. There's also links to uh, how you can uh, support the pod by buying me a cup of coffee, which is perfectly optional. I'm just pleased you're listening. If you'd like to get in touch, suggest a guest, just let me know what you think. It's uh, welldressedad at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram as welldressedad. So until next week, bye-bye. <laughs>